We have redesigned the, um, this is as much for the people that are listening in three days than you. Um, but if you're listening to this recording, you're going to have a hard time finding this recording shortly because we've changed the way the podcast is structured. So we're going to separate out the Church of the Holy Spirit sermons and the Church of the Holy Spirit Sunday School. So henceforth, going forward, when you go to the website, it's already true on our website, but if you just go to like, I don't know, listen, it's like sermons and Sunday School are separate options. But both of those have historically taken you to the same spot at SoundCloud. If you listen to this on SoundCloud, you're going to find this Sunday School class disappears there. And so you on SoundCloud, you'd want to go to Church of the Holy Spirit dash Sunday School within SoundCloud and subscribe to that channel as well, and that'll help you get that. I'm going to say that every week for the next couple of weeks so folks don't just think that it disappeared. So if you listen to it on tape, it's on SoundCloud, and you can get it through our website, but we're going to separate out Sunday School from sermons. Also, next week we have a treat. We have a guest speaker named Chad. Chad, hop up. And uh, I'll let Chad tell what he's talking about. He's just louder than me, so he doesn't need a microphone. Well, okay. Let's go. So like Tim said, my name is Chad Yates. I do kind of facilitate the men's Bible study at the 10 o'clock hour. And we're finishing up a study of James. We're heading into our next one. And next week, I'm going to go ahead and teach everyone lesson one. And then I'll encourage you guys to head over and do the rest of the study. So what we'll do is about 10 weeks or so, we're going to walk through inspirational men in Scripture who give their kind of testimony, their teaching, how to become the spiritual leaders of their family. So it's kind of a timely study. Um, it's going to be in room 303, but next week I'll be in this room to kind of lead us through the intro and kind of walk you through what it's going to look like. So I won't be as, you know, Timish, but... <laughs> he, he means attractive. That's what you were going for. Right, 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 right. Thanks, Chad. So I will be, next week I'll be away. Kelly and I are going away to our conference with the fellows. So while, when Chad is here, all the ladies, you're welcome to come. Please do come. And everybody come. But anybody that feels like, hey, I like what Chad's doing. I want to kind of leave Tim's group and jump over here for the next 10 weeks. Feel free. You're welcome to do that. Um, but then I'll be back here the following week to start a brand new series. And I don't have any idea what it's going to be. So we'll find out. But I got two weeks to figure that out. What we're doing today, believe it or not, is we're going to finish David. You might thought, I thought we were done. Here's how this works. We've been studying the life of David for eons, and it's looked like we were studying 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, because that's the context of, that's the place that we're finding David's story. But it's a little bit funny, because David's story doesn't end in 2 Samuel. There's a little bit of a P.S. in 1 Kings. And so we're, we're not going to, I do not intend to go study 1 Kings now. Okay, we're going to do something else. I don't know what, but it won't be that. But we are going to finish we're going to land the plane on David by looking at his final days, which we only get in the first couple chapters of 1 Kings. So if you're used to being in Samuel, just go like one more page, and we're going to, we're going to see this thing wrap up, okay? Generally, it's funny how they, they split the book, because what was first, who was 1 Samuel about, by and large? Saul. And who is 2 Samuel about, by and large? And then, but who is 1 Kings going to be about, by and large? Solomon, then the next kind of generation of guys. But we just get this little bit of David at the very beginning of 1 Kings, right? John? That's right. That's also correct, yes. So. Yeah, so the, the names and the division of these, what John is saying is it used to be that Samuel was a united book and, and uh, Kings are a united book. We've kind of divided them up for our own purposes. It got split when the uh, Old Testament was 
Yes, okay. So it's a little bit hard to hear you, and the type's not going to hear that. John's just giving a little bit of the history of kind of how and why we divided the books. One thing I would just add to you is we have done, we just did this, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and then we're just going to just kiss into 1 Kings, and then, then the 2 Kings falls after that. That is one continuous unbroken narrative, right, from Saul's kingdom, David's kingdom, Solomon's, and then all the kings that follow after that. But then you've also got these other two books, First and Second Chronicles, and it gets a little bit confusing. So just real quick, the way this, the way these things line up, if you're, you know, if you want to continue reading First Kings, get through all that. When you get to Chronicles, you kind of back up, and First Chronicles summarizes one book, namely Second Samuel, and then Second Chronicles summarizes, doesn't summarize, it repeats two books, namely. First and second kings, okay? So if you want to go catch the life of David, where would you find that in Chronicles? First Chronicles. First Chronicles. So First Chronicles is a re- recap of Second Samuel, right, which is going to be David's life. Um, do you know why we have it? Why we have the Chronicle books in addition? We got this thing that's not, that's com- coherent. It's complete. First and second Samuel, first and second kings. Why do we go back and then duplicate second Samuel and first and second kings with the chronicle books. Anybody know what's going on with that? Zach? Is it the same account from a different person's perspective? Okay, it is the same account, and it's right that it's from a different person's perspective, but the difference isn't so much the person's perspective as the time's perspective, okay? So first Samuel, second Samuel, first Kings, second Kings are largely written to explain why these guys go into captivity. It's a story of God's faithfulness to these people and their complete lack of faithfulness in response, right? And we've seen this already. You get a hint of it in Saul. Saul, you know, God is faithful to Saul and then Saul bails. David is really faithful to God, but he's got some tragic flaws. You see that? It's really going to ramp up as we get into Solomon and the other kings. And the, and the culminating moment in 1 Kings, or no, rather in 2 Kings is like, it's over here, friends. Like, bring on Babylon, right? The Assyrians come in and they bring destruction. The Babylonians come in and bring destruction. And the book ends with a sense of, like, God has been faithful to his people. They've been faithless. And so boot them out of the land. And it's over. Okay? And that's a coherent story. The chronicler is going to come and he's going to write his history of the same time period. But he writes it after they have already been kicked out of the land and as they're coming into the land. And so what he's saying is not only is God faithful and not only are we faithless in response, but when we repent, God is faithful again. And so the chronicler is going to give a bigger sense of hope after failure because he's writing to a group of people that have failed miserably and are hoping that it's not completely over for them. Right? Does that make sense? So when you get to like, for instance, and I'll come to you in one second, Kelly. The story, one of that, one of the most villainous creatures in the king's narrative is Manasseh. Do you remember what Manasseh is famous for? What his like the low point of Manasseh's life is? Sacrificed his children. Sacrificed his children, Gary. So Manasseh is horrible dude. And he's worshiping these the pagan gods, and they will take like they have this this bronze statue of uh, Molech, and you take your baby. Can you imagine, like? And they lay their baby into the arms of this molten, or this, you know, this, this red hot oven as a sacrifice to their God. Manasseh, the king of Israel, uh, Judah, king of Judah, does this. And that's all you get in kings. He's just bad, 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 bad. 
But in the chronicler account, we get all of that, but then we get this additional detail that he was so, that God brings judgment into, into his life, and he is so miserable. But they put a hook in his nose, foreign kings put a hook in his nose and drag him away. And when God sees Manasseh's misery, he is moved by his sorrow and restores him, right? So the chronicler is going to give us that. He's going to say, yeah, 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 he blew it huge, but he repented and God restored him. And even as you repent, he will restore you, right? So if you continue on, we're, we're not, but if you continue to read Kings, you're going to get the sense of it's bad, 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 bad. And then if you decide to read it under Chronicles, then you'll see it really was just that bad. But every once in a while, every once in a while, somebody would repent and God would restore them. Kelly Sue. That's exactly right. Okay, so what Kelly is saying, she's filling this in. So we've got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then Second Samuel gets the recapitulation of Chronicle of, of, on Chronicles, and then both of the Kings on Chronicles. And what's added to it is all these stories of repentance and restoration. What's removed from it is the story of Israel, because what hasn't happened yet. What's going to happen is the kingdom's going to split into north and south. And the north keeps the name, Israel, and the south keeps the promise. The Messiah is going to come from the southern tribes. So we have ten northern tribes of Israel, the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so the chronicler, because he's recapping restoration, he's only concerned with the part of the nation that is restored, namely Judah, the southern tribes. And, and you'll have incidental mention of Israel, but it's not following their nation. So more repentance, less Israel, because Israel didn't repent. Okay, so that's how that comes, which is not what we're talking about today. I don't know how we got here. John? Another purpose of the Chronicles is the first 10 or 11 chapters provide a real challenge to people who are willing to read through the Bible program. Yeah, there are, yeah, that's true. There are passages in First Chronicles. Well, honestly, there's passages all over the place that are, as we would say, we might say, they are challenging to those that are doing a through the Bible reading program, right? Some things will slow you down a little bit. All right, blah, blah, blah. Let's watch David die. You ready? First Kings chapter 1. And there are some interesting ways that the good and the bad of David's life is all about to get buttoned up. Okay? First Kings chapter 1 verse 1. When King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his servants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him. So that our Lord the King may keep warm. I mean, what else are you going to do? Right? <laughs> it's the only possible solution. <laughs> so verse 3. And not only is it helpful if she has body heat. But if she's hot, <laughs> that would be nice too, right? Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl. And found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very warm. <laughs> and she took care of the king and waited on him. But the king had no intimate relations with her. Okay. So what is up with this, you guys? What do you make of that? She is a bed warmer. 
Does it, do you find this encouraging or discouraging? <laughs> it's in the Bible. Strange. Strange. He did learn a lesson, I think. He did? What lesson do you think he learned? Uh, Bathsheba. Well, okay. So this is, okay, this is the thing, right? So we have, we've been saying all along a couple of different things about David. On the one hand, David is the type for the Messiah. He is the shape. He is the pattern. He is the form. And when when, David com- when Jesus comes, he will be known as the son of David. He's coming in the form and in the shape and in the manner. He is fulfilling the, the, the mode that David sets. David is the forerunner for the king of kings, right? And David is a really, he's a man after, there's so many things that David gets right. He trusts the Lord, he seeks the Lord. But David is not the Messiah. And David can't fulfill his own model. In so many ways, David is like this hopeful picture of what could be, and then he just, man, he just screws it up, right? So you've got to have, have this dualistic vision of David. He is a man after God's own heart, and he gets an awful lot of things right. But David, and we've, we've watched this for weeks and weeks and weeks, from Bathsheba on, man, it's just life just spins out of control, right? We've also seen that David has two areas of his life that keep screwing him up, right? What are the, what are the two primary ways that David just kind of Screws things up. Lust, Lust and Lust. anger, violence, right? So it's these, these two things, right? These are not unique, Dave, or David is not unique in this. These tend to be probably the number one and number two results of the half of you that are testosterone-laden, right? And so when we see it, you could come to this, and you could be encouraged, or you could be discouraged. You could be like, man, David, like, really? Still? <laughs> like, is sanctification real? Do we improve? Do we grow? Do we get better? And it could be kind of discouraging. Stuart? I mean, it's almost like his servants are the ones who cooked up this idea. Yeah, but you know, I mean, he has agency. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, they're following what? Yeah. Yeah. So on the one hand, yeah, Stuart's like, a little bit of exculpatory data is that it, wasn't, it doesn't appear to be David's idea, Right? It was, it, was the, it was the servant's idea. But he's trained them. They know what he wants. And he could be like, what are you talking about? Enough of this, right? Could have. Yeah, Brian. Um, do we really have a sense as to how much agency he had left? I mean, because the picture of the painting is just this evil guy in his bed who can't stay warm. Yeah, it wasn't his fault, man. They just... Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well... Awareness did he have? Well... Because he didn't have relations with her and if he was with his old self... He may have. Yeah. But, I mean, did he, was that even something he was interested in? Yeah, so we d- there, there are some gaps in our narrative. We don't know, you know, how much agency does have it, but he d- does David have it? He's not all that feeble. There's going to be a couple things going to happen in the next couple of chapters. He is, he is still speaking. He's still in command. And he doesn't, it doesn't, you don't get the impression he puts up much of a fight, right? Catherine? In, in one way, it could be encouraging. Typical? All right. Do we take offense to that? Can we? Are we allowed to take offense to that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is a particular approach, though. Yes. Okay. So it could be. It could be that you're like, uh, you're encouraged that like, okay, um, God still uses broken people. You know, you, you could you could grab that, or you could be discouraged like, man, is there any improvement ever going to come in my life? Right. I wonder if you might think like. Or have you guys ever gotten to the point you're like, I really thought 20 years down the road, 
I'd be better at this than I am. Has anybody thought that they would become more patient, more wise? And you're like, you know, I just thought we might be at a better place than we are right now, right? Okay, Tommy. I see it as a bit of an extension of, of the abuse of kingship by man. Uh, For sure. Is, is falling away from sanctification and, and the sinistness kind of points to the fact that we can't have man as king and has to be God. That's right. Mormon, if you take her as a concubine, like for instance, right, like there would have been an exchange. If he had relations with her, maybe he would give her a child, you know, a son that could have taken care of her later. And instead, who is she going to marry after laying in the bed with the king? Well, that's actually going to become a major plot twist because she's, we'll see that. You're getting a, well, I, I probably got to get moving here. We always get stuck on verse one. So, so yes. And so when you say, you know, the, the limitations of a human king, that's what David is the type of the king, but he's not the king. He can't do it. And we see even as an old guy, he's still dragging around some of the same old things. Okay, so here's what happens. Um, he's dying, and when, when the king is getting ready to die, what's everybody else thinking about? Who's next? Who's next? Who's next, right? And so one of his sons, look at, look at verse 5, Adonijah. says, now Adonijah, whose mother, mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Okay, we've been at this game for months. What's the narrator doing? What, there's something just happened that you're supposed to be like, ah, 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 I get it. What is that? It's a, it's a rhyming of history. Yes, that's a great way to, it's a rhyming of history. What is he rhyming historically with? Absalom. It is Absalom. Not only, remember Absalom is super good looking, right? What else, there are two things that are being rhymed here. Number one, this guy's, this guy's good, he probably has a lot of hair, right? He's really, he's really beautiful. Absalom was really beautiful. What's the other parallel he's setting up? What, what is it? Okay, they're both power hungry. Yeah, that's right. Okay, there's another, there's another one. Between, not just between Absalom and um, Adonijah, but between David and David. Lily? His complete negligence of being a parent. This, right? Right? When it says, the guy's like, his father, David, had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? That's what ruined his kingdom. Right? Do you remember this? He loses everything because this whole Absalom and Amnon, and this one likes his sister, and this one murders the brother, and all this stuff. And David was just being passive and negligent. And what the author is telling us here at this moment, he's showing us, remember how David had a problem with women? Well, now he has a problem with some teenager, right? Do you remember how David had a problem being like, you know, like engaging with his kids and the same? So that's what we're seeing is the very end of the game. We're, we're cheering for David. Like, come on, David. You're like, let's go. And there are just things where he's just, he doesn't go, right? And so, again, you can look at this and be like, I thought redemption worked. What gives? Or you could look at it and you could say, God is merciful and patient even to people that made the same stupid mistake for the 50th time. It might be that David is rhyming with his own history and it might be places that he's rhyming with you. Right? And so we're watching the story through these eyes. Okay, so parts of us sometimes are slow to redeem. Look at verse 7. 
So Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. We might remember some of these names. We won't recap them all now. But Zadok, the priest, Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shemi, and Ray, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. So that's good. Some of these guys are like, ooh, no, you're not the guy. You're putting yourself forward. You're not the guy. We don't want you to do it, so we're not going to step on your team. But do you know who does join his team? Joab is going to join this team. That's going to be a problem, okay? And it's so consistent. People divide into factions. Whatever's going on is these guys back this horse, these guys back this horse. And so I think the author here is showing us the consistency not just of David, but of mankind. Sometimes we just get it wrong, and then we get it wrong, and then we get it wrong, and then we get it wrong. Right? That's what's going on. And now Bathsheba comes in. Now listen again. The narrator is giving you a hint. Okay, the narrator... He's not likely to tell you. He's not saying, and isn't it scandalous that David's in bed with this girl, right? He's not saying that. He's just going to drop little hints. Listen to how this is recorded. Verse 15. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room where Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending him. Bathsheba bowed low and knelt before the king. What is it you want, the king asked. Why is it framed that way? Why does he point out, he just told us that Abishag is attending the king. Why does does the narrator mention it when Bathsheba comes in the room? There's a debt debt sort of there, whole thing with Bathsheba basically cheating on her husband. Again, he had power, he took her, you know, but now her her husband was murdered or a child out of that ultimate sect at marriage. That's right. Yeah. So, <coughs> you screwed me up pretty hard. Now it's time to keep your promise. Yes. So, so Bathsheba knows a thing or two about David's issues with women, right? Bathsheba was the other woman, right? And so she knows it from that side of the story. And now that Bathsheba is probably a fair bit older too, right? I, we don't know how what the age difference was. But David now has this younger woman. Bathsheba's got a new Bathsheba, right? And it's probably, from her perspective, a little bit galling to come in. I'm just guessing. Would that be galling, Kelly? I think that would be a little bit galling, right? And so I think the narrator is just trying to point out to us that, like, yeah, man, this is just weird. And yet God is gracious in this whole thing. So what ends up happening, what's her request going to be, you guys? Well, you know why she's coming to see him? Because this other punk is taking over the kingdom. And it's supposed to be my kid, our kid, Solomon. Do you remember any of this? Like, it's, she's like, David, what are you doing? And so um, God is going to like basically put down the Adonijah rebellion before it even gets started. Because David's going to come in and say, no, 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 not him, him. David's going to pick his successor at the request of Bathsheba, Right? Now, I want you to skip down a little bit because we're going to be, we're not going to have a lot, a lot of time here. Go down to verse 49. Yeah. There's all this drama, all this, you know, intrigue. And in verse 49, it says that this, Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. But Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went back and took hold of the horns of the altar. What's happened here is Solomon has been made king. And now Adonijah thinks, oh, no. I was making a play for the throne. This guy won it. It's not just that he gets to be the king, but now I'm going to get to be dead. 
and he and he cries out and he runs into the runs into the uh, to grabs the horns of the altar and in verse fifty one Solomon was told Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and he's clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. And Solomon is gracious. And in verse 52, Solomon replied, if he shows himself to be a worthy man, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. And then King Solomon sent men. They brought him from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed before King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your home. What's happening is this kingdom is finally transferring from David who still has the same issues, into Solomon. Solomon begins his reign in humility. He begins his reign in mercy. And I think we're supposed to see this, and it's supposed to give us new hope. Okay, the new guy, it was, we thought it was David, but it wasn't David. Now it might be Solomon, and it really might be. We're waiting for the good king to come, and right now we're off, well, things are off to a pretty good start. Okay? You guys might know this story, like all the stories, aren't going to end all that well. But right now it's pretty good. But David is going to give him final words. Go to chapter 2, verse 2. This is David passing things on to his son Solomon, who has now become new king. Listen to this. 2-2. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, David said. So, be strong. Show yourself a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that... You may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. And so that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Okay? Pretty good. David is saying, hey, Solomon, it's a little bit of do as I say, not as I do. Right? And it's a little bit of do as I do. Because David hasn't gotten everything wrong. He's gotten a lot of things right. We're picking on the things that he's, bailed, that he's screwed up. But he really has gotten a lot of stuff right. And he's saying, son, get it right. Do it. He's setting up what Solomon is going to say over and over and over again. Where? Where do you hear, where do you hear Solomon repeating what his dad said to him? Proverbs. Proverbs, Proverbs is, by and large, Solomon telling his son, Son, listen to me, right? If you want to be wise, if you want to gain wisdom, if you want things to go well, do this. He's, it's, it's an amplification of what he's learning from his dad, right? So it's not all bad. He's been negligent in some key places, but sometimes he gets it right. And then it's going to get a little bit spicier. Take a look what happens in verse 8. Still David, still giving instructions to the new king. He says, and remember... You have with you Shemi, son of Gera. Who's Shemi? Do you remember Shemi? The rock kicker. The one that's like, get out of here, you scoundrel, you man of blood, right? And when, uh, when David came back into his kingdom, Shemi bowed before him, and David extended mercy to Shemi. Do you remember all this? Now, David says this. This is, again, spicy. Remember you have with you Shemi, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to uh, Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now you don't need to consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. What do you think of that? Is that surprising? 
he had promised to Shemi, like, I'm not going to kill you. But his, one of his final orders is to the new king, like, deal with that guy. Good or bad? What do you think, John? Well, he promised to Shemi that that's right. That's right. I won't kill you. Uh, you didn't find Solomon for that. That's exactly right. So is he is he upright in this? This is tricky. Robin? There's a question in my mind David is leading God's forgiveness. And so he obviously held on to bitter resentment. Clearly. Okay, so in case you couldn't hear, Robin is saying, it seems like it just kind of gives some indication that David is holding on to bitterness here. He's been mad at Shammy for years. He, he's, he bound himself by an oath, and he's not going to violate it. But now maybe there's a way out. Maybe. We'll, we'll see. There's a little bit more information we'll get. Michael? Could he just be uh, making sure that the final uprising is connected to Saul and the relationships there that, hey, we're just going to do the stage of these final kind of remaining Yes. And Solomon will have an Okay, and so this is absolutely fair. Michael is saying there is now, there's another, there's a, there's a vulnerability for Israel, right? Because there's a king, there's kingdom transfer. And in the midst of kingdom transfer, every kingdom transfer, there's the opportunity to, for somebody to start throwing sand in the gears and to, and to redirect history. This has happened thousands of times in human history. And so David reasonably is like, we've got to make sure that anybody that could, he hated me, he's probably going to hate you. He didn't want me to be king, he's not going to want you to be king. There is some level of like political stratagem going on here that's reasonable. Yes, Kelly. Along with that, um, I saw a footnote referencing Exodus, <coughs> saying that uh, the Mosaic law says, "Do not blaspheme God and do not curse." Um, and so, <coughs> it's punishable by law if you if you curse the ruler. And so, both the fact that David did it. Yes, this is great. So Kelly's saying that there's there's Mosaic law that you, you're not allowed to curse the king. Shemi is guilty, should be punished. And so we've got we've got Mosaic law, we've got securing the kingdom, we've got a promise that was made, we've got all sorts of different pieces. And it's coming to Solomon. And what we know is what is Solomon gonna be famous for very soon? Wisdom. Wisdom, right, being wise. And this is what David says to him. He says, But now don't consider him innocent. He says, You are a man of wisdom, you will know what to do to him. Right? And he's basically saying, Solomon, like, work this. It's going to be complicated. Work it out. And so here's what Solomon does. Take a look at this. Uh, oh, let's see. Did I skip this? My notes are kind of sketchy on this. Hang on. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Where does it happen? Mm, hang on. I'm not actually looking at the Bible like you think I am. I'm looking at my notes of the Bible. So let me go to First Kings because I'm not sure if I grabbed the wrong piece here. 36. 36. Is that where I want to be? So what he's going to do, yeah, to go down, very good, thank you. Go down to verse 36. So then the king sent for Shimei, Shemi, whatever, and he said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, but do not go anywhere else. The day you leave and cross the Kidron Valley, you can be sure you will die. Your blood will be on your own head. And Shemi answered the king, what you say is good. Your servant will do as my lord the king has said. And Shimei stayed in Jerusalem for a long time. This is interesting. God, David said, bring his head, 
down to, you know, how does it go? Bring his gray head down to blood or something. And so he, he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put you under house arrest. Stay in, build yourself a sweet house. Stay in Jerusalem. As long as you do that, I won't touch you. He's giving himself permission to be gracious within confined boundaries. But he's also giving himself permission. If you step out of it, I'm going to kill you. And you know it. And so do you understand how he's giving himself the ability to execute judgment? To keep his hands clean, to offer, offer mercy, reserve the right for judgment, and to limit his ability to screw things up for the kingdom. He's all, and all, all in one fell swoop, he's found a way to be just, a way to be merciful, to protect his kingdom, and then ultimately to probably set a stage that is going to result in exactly what his father wants, which is the death of Shemmy. And it works. Shemmy stays there for a, quote, long time. But then what's going to happen in verse 39 is three years later, which isn't that long, two of Shemmy's slaves ran off to Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath. And Shemmy was told, your slaves are in Gath. And at this, he saddled his donkey and went to Achish at Gath in search of his slaves. So Shemmy went away and brought the slaves back from Gath. And when Solomon was told that he'd gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned, King summoned him and said, did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you on the day you leave to go anywhere else, you can be sure that you will die. And at that time, you said to me, what you say is good, I will obey. Why then did you not keep your oath to the Lord and obey the command I gave you? And then, kind of the haymaker here, you know in your heart all the wrong that you did to my father David. Now the Lord will repay you for your wrongdoing. The King Solomon will be blessed and David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. The king gave the order, and he struck him down, and he died. And the kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. Okay? What do you think, any takeaways from all of that? Why does the narrator give us this story and play it out as it is? What, is? what are we trying to see in all of that? We've already hit some of the, some of the hints of this, but what do you take away as, you're learning, as, you're lear- as you have learned to read narrative? Justifiable reason for... Yeah the death of Shimmy, not just I'm going to take revenge and have this guy murdered, but yes. caught him in a wrongdoing. Yes, absolutely. He, ca- he, he creates a circumstance where he can be hands clean, right? We're going to be just. We're not just going to be acting out vengeance, but the Lord will, if I do what is right, it's very likely that the Lord will bring about the circumstances that this justice can be executed. And that's exactly the way it plays out. So Solomon's not only is the kingdom firmly in his power, but he doesn't begin his kingship with bloody hands, right? It was proper the way it all plays out. Rox? Well, I think the other thing is, if we then take it and apply it to our lives, it's when you know that you believe that something's going to come to fruition. You're 99.9% for sure that something's going to come to fruition. But yet you don't act out. Be patient, yes. Right? But you act out based on what we know from the Bible, from biblical teaching. Absolutely true, right? Just be patient, do what is right, and we'll let the Lord kind of bring this out. Have I, I don't know if I've told this, we talked about uh, Donna in here, Kelly? Uh, your roommate? So interesting phenomena that we, I remember learning this in a really distinct way. When, when we were at JMU, Kelly had lived in a house full of girls, all these wonderful crew girls, Campus Crusade girls. And, uh, and, but a new roommate came in, and as time played out, they, they, all these ladies, they began to have objects go missing. Things just disappeared. A shirt would disappear. And a, 
I don't even know. Whole, uh, things just started disappearing, and it became obvious somebody was stealing, and that somebody wasn't Kelly, and it wasn't Sharon, and it wasn't Beth, and it wasn't Ann, right? And we, we, we were pretty convinced that it was this other girl, Donna, that was just stealing stuff from them. And so we're like, what do we do? You know, what do we, you know, what do, we do about all this? And we, I remember we had a meeting with Phil, our, our pastor, and he basically said, you just wait, and you trust this, that the Lord will bring to, the, bring to light the deeds of darkness. He says, and we, you know, we're like ready to like, you know, set a trap and set a camera and do all this kind of stuff, you know. And uh, he's like, no, 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 you don't, you don't, you're, we're Christians, we're Christians. He's like, he's like, we're Christians. We're people of the light. We don't, we don't lurk about in the darkness. We just live in the light. And we trust the Lord will bring all things clear in the time that he chooses. And so that's exactly what happened. And I remember as it happened, and as, as Donna unwittingly ended up revealing her treachery, it was, for me, it was, it was like, who knew that Phil was right about that, you know? That we didn't need to play any games. We didn't need to manipulate the situation. Just live in the light, and the Lord will bring to light these things. And that's what we're seeing here, right? Is that Solomon is like, I don't, need to, I don't need to play any games. The world is filled with game players. We can simply be honest, truthful, honorable people and trust the Lord to bring this thing to pass. And he did. And she was exposed, and she ended up moving out and returned all their stuff, and it all worked out. And I think it largely worked out because of the way that Kelly and her roommates were willing to trust the Lord in the midst of all of it. Would, I, would you add any detail to that story? Any color that I'm missing that you want to? Is that good enough? Okay. All right. So uh, let's take a look at this other part of the story. Go back to 220. We're kind of unbraiding this, the storylines here in the chapter. In 220, um, uh, Bathsheba has says, comes in and says this, um, which is funny because Bathsheba had already, what was Bathsheba's earlier request? Mike Solomon. Yeah, keep your word to do what? Make Solomon. Make Solomon, make my son Solomon king instead of who? Adonijah. This time she's going to come and make a request on behalf of Adonijah, which is so weird. You're like, what are you doing, Bathsheba? So in 220, she comes in now to Solomon and says, I have one small request to make of you, she said. Do not refuse me. And the king, this is now Solomon, not David. The new king, Solomon, replied, make it my mother. I will not refuse you. P.S. Never sign a blank check, okay? <laughs> never do that. She says, give me what I want. He's like, anything you want, mom. And then she says what she wants. So she says, let Abishag, the Shunammite, this is the girl that's been in bed with your dad, let him be given in marriage to your brother Adonijah. Okay, what is she asking? <laughs> what does this mean? Because Solomon is not going to like it, okay? Yeah, Suzanne? Normally the harem, or whatever you want to call it, passes to the next king. Yes. This is she becomes Adonijah's wife, then it <coughs> portrays that he should have been king. Do you hear this? Okay, so this is so odd. So Bathsheba had said, don't let Adonijah be king, let Solomon be king. And then Solomon is king. And then she goes to Solomon the king and says, hey... Give a member of your dad's harem to your rival. And he has already said, whatever you want, anything you like, okay? He retracts it immediately. Verse 22, King Solomon answered his mother, why do you request, he's like, where is this coming from? Why do you request Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. 
After all, he is my older brother. Yes, for him and for Abiathar the priest and Joab son of Zariah. And then King Solomon swore by the Lord, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. And now, as surely as the Lord lives, he who has established me securely on the throne of my father David and has founded a dynasty for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. And so King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, the son of Jehida, and he struck down Adonijah and he died. Why do you think she says this? There's a variety of ideas on this. Stuart? For that reason, I think maybe she's pretty smart and knew that if she did that, then he would be locked in his chains. The one person that could be his sort of rival is now gone. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the theories, I think it's the best theory, that Bathsheba knew exactly what she was doing. That, but this wasn't her idea. Adonijah... Had, we, we skipped it, but Adonijah had come to Bathsheba and said, hey, hey, uh, you know, this drag that whole thing worked out, but I'm glad your son is the king, so lovely. But just one more small thing. Could I get the girl? <laughs> and she, it is probably is the case, that she hears this and thinks, you want me to go ask Solomon to give you David's, one of David's harem? That's what you're asking me to do. He's like, yeah, yeah, would you mind doing that? She's like, yeah, you bet. Happy to. <laughs> sure thing. And then she does, and Solomon responds in the absolute predictable way. And then her son's kingdom is secured. Not just against Shemi, but also against this other rival, and her, her son's throne is established. I think that's what we're supposed to see happening there. Because otherwise, it makes no sense why Bathsheba would be, would be advocating for this. Okay, Chris? Yeah, just shut him down. Isn't Solomon just following through with <coughs> what he's made a deal with? At night, just saying, if you are a worthy man. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, he goes to bed. Yes. And he's not a worthy man. Yes, and that's right. And so what Bob is saying is in the same way that Solomon was justified in taking out Shemi for this start, he is justified in taking out Adonijah because there was, there, was a, there was a deal like, hey, behave yourself, we'll go well with you. But if you don't, I'm the new king. And that's, that's exactly how it plays out, for sure. Kelly? Uh, a comment and a question. Yep. A comment. Isn't there something for you? Like, can't, can't Adonijah kind of get away with this request because maybe there's this caveat that Abishag isn't really part of the harem because she's a virgin? Like, I think that's how he's justifying it. Like, can she be my wife? Because she wasn't really part of the harem because she had never slept with that's a fair, that's a fair question, and I confess I'm not super knowledgeable about the inner rules of harming. So, so, but, but yes, yeah, yeah, I know. It's just, it's just you and me, babe. So, um, but uh, that that might be somewhat plausible. However, it's certainly the case that Solomon sees her as being sufficiently haremized that it's a threat to his throne. Yeah. Um, Maybe he was justifying it to himself. I think Adonijah probably wouldn't have had the gall or the courage to make that request if she was legit bride of David or in the harem. But the ambiguity about how she, she she's for all intents and purposes part of the harem. Technically. Right. And that probably speaks to human nature. And Adonijah's mind 
Like you know what it's like when you've already made your decision up and then you can just, you back sell the justification to yourself, you know? Like, why does he like her? Probably because she's really pretty, right? And then once you've gotten that, you're like, oh yeah, the rest of this makes total sense, right? In light of the fact that I already know what I want, well, she's not really part of the harem, and, and off we go, right? It's just a warning to human nature. We're like, I know why I'm, I've already made my decision, now I'm just going to fill in the justification, okay? So, okay. You may not know the answer to this, but is it possible that, that Abishag and Shunammite is on Solomon? So that we call her, it's interesting, so we call her the Shunammite, and I, don't, I didn't chase down what even that word means. Like, is it simply a people group? How broad is that? So it would be fascinating if she is the one to whom he writes the love song. Um, I, I didn't, and has anybody looked into this? Is she the girl that we think was Solomon's queen? It's someone from, a Shunammite, somebody from the, the city of Shunem. But I don't know if it's connected to the Song of Solomon. She's in Song of Solomon. The queen of Song of Solomon is known as the Shunammite. But I don't know if that's her. That's really interesting. So I don't know. Nobody knows yet? Okay, we'll try to look into that. Okay. Um, and then I feel like there was another hand. Judy, was it you? Can I ask, do we know that, I guess I have nothing to do with this part. Do we know that, I can't remember the name, went to Bathsheba and asked her? Adon- yeah, it is. I skipped it, but Adonijah goes to Bathsheba to be like, hey, would you ask your son a favor for me? This doesn't sound very nice. I know, it's so dumb. Like, it's really dumb. Again, this is, I think the blinding nature of desire just makes things seem like a good idea that really aren't a good idea. Yeah, I know. It was a bad, bad call. Okay, and so, and so it ends. So here's where we end. We've been studying David for months and months. The things I want to leave you with are this, and then we've got to go to church. He really was an amazingly godly man, exceptionally so. We get more data on this one guy than anybody else in the entire scriptures besides Jesus. His life is, is, tra- is traced in enormous detail. We've got all these poems that he wrote, the history. He's referred to countless times in the New Testament. He's a major, major, major player. And yet, he's tragically flawed. It began with all of the goodness of his life. And then these last months, we've just seen how many ways he shipwrecked his life. He couldn't fulfill his own promise. And that's good news for us. That's really good news for us. It's good news for us because he was not the Messiah, but a Messiah would come. And all your life, you know, we're, you're going to find men and women that you admire and you will think like, oh, they're wonderful, they're great. And then you learn that they're not that much different than you, right? And every time it happens, every time it happens, it's meant to shake us free from this sense that we can place our hope in man. It's going to be, if this job is going to get done, God is going to have to, the only way this can possibly work is if God himself becomes a human being. And lives a life that the rest of the pretenders simply cannot live. And it's even true in the final moments of David's life. He gets a few things right at the end. He gets a few things wrong at the end. Because so it is forever. There's, there's this wonderful character in, in uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader named Eustace Scrub. And he's just a wretched kid. But he, he ends up being redeemed by Aslan. And his life is changed. And, and Lewis has this comment about how much his life was really transformed. He really was changed. He was really improved. And he was not anything like the selfish brat that he had been. But on the right kind of day, under the right kind of circumstances, Lewis remarks that Eustace was Eustace after all. (laughs) Right? Does that give you hope? That, you know, we all have our good days where we arise above our base nature 
where the redemptive work of God is there, where we're yielded to the Spirit. But dang it all, if at the end of the day, Eustace isn't Eustace, right? We, our hope is not in this world of moral um, behavioral modification. Our hope is that God is transforming us, that in the world to come, we will finally be made like him. We'll see him as he is, right? He is made moving us into his image, but it's a slow gig. The day is coming that he will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body, and we will see him, and we will be like him. We're just a little bit this side of the line right now, right? So it was for David, so it is for us. Put your hope in him. That's the life of David. Benice. All right. See ya. Uh, I don't know the Godfather. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am.